Good morning to you, sir. How are we? I'm very good, Frank. How are you today? Oh, fine. Listen, I'm 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 chilling out. I'm um, I'm going to be quite busy um, this weekend. I'm um, I'm recording the the final audio book on the oh, the right. Butland series. I've got the first two are out in audio as well as the electronic and paperback. So this is me completing the set, and I'm going to be doing that over the over the weekend, which is going to be fun. Uh, right. Okay then. Um, so let's get into it then. Um, we Absolutely. Don't have much time to waste. So first of all. Um, the first book, um, I've not long finished reading it. Uh, what time does the Midnight Cabaret start? Yeah, I remember hearing that. Somebody's saying uh, people being asked that question. Um, so I think it must have been someone who was a, a former Redcoat. Um, but was it as regularly asked as it seems to be intimated? Absolutely. Every single person that worked as a red coat was asked that question. Didn't matter what camp you were at, you were always asked that question and you had to try and give a reply whilst being a, trying to sort of be nice at the same time. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, when you were the red blazer, you could get away with it. You know, the usual stock reply was half past six, but that can, <laughs> but, then, but then again, you could get away with anything in those days. Yeah, yeah. Um, I must admit, uh, Never, I've never worked as a red coat or mm-hmm. uh, as a blue coat at the other. Uh, oh, uh, blue coat! <laughs> we won't mention their name, but I did play um, at uh, Butlins in Air, but it was no longer Butlins when I played there. It was called Craig Tara. Yeah, um, yeah. So, roughly, when did it kind of change from Butlins to Craig Tara? You're talking about '98. Was right. when it was when it stopped. I mean, I've heard so many different reasons as to why it made the move. You know, mm. you know, I don't know if it was to do with maybe enough people coming through the door, or maybe they were trying to develop, mm. you know, new new things when the planning permission didn't come through. I've heard so many different stories. I couldn't say that was definitely the reason why, but yeah. I think to be honest, um, it was change. Times were changing. Yeah. You know, the type of holiday maker was changing because I actually went back to the camp in '96. Um, back in red and whites, because I was doing an article for for one of the papers, um, sort of turning back the clock to sort of commemorate the anniversary, mm-hmm. and just walking through there, you know, you could see that you could feel it, you could feel the yeah. difference because a lot of the things had changed because there was a lot of things we did back then, mm-hmm. you would you would get nicked for <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> you know, um, and the thing and the thing was you, um, the holiday makers had changed. You know, the attitudes have changed. There was a lot of things we had back then that they wouldn't yeah. even dare run, especially because of the politically correct world that we live in now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, example was things like the cheerful, charming and chubby competition. <laughs> you know, um, the ladies of, a, of the fuller figure, as it were. Um, <laughs> and that was always a, that was a major, major highlight of the week for a lot of people. Yeah, but try and run that today, you get killed. <laughs> Absolutely, and it it brings to mind, um, of course, the TV series High Day High, yeah, which um, obviously is a fictional thing, but I've always felt that it was very, maybe not so loosely based on the likes of Butlins, etc. But would that have been correct? Yeah, well, for starters, the guys that wrote High Day High actually worked at Butlins. All oh, right, Jimmy Perry was a red coat. Um, I don't know. What, I don't know what David Croft wrote, but I, I know the two of them worked at Butlins. And the thing is, when you're talking about um, characters, or when you talk about writing a book, the first thing they always say is write about what you know. 
And so the thing is, even I mean, even the, when likes of them were doing Dad's Army, it was always based on people that have known or people that have met. Yeah. And the thing was, Heidi High was based in the 1950s, but a lot of people could relate to what was going on in that TV series to what was going on at the time. I mean, people used to say the Spike character was me. You know, the one, the, the one, the wannabe stand-up comedian who fell in love with a fellow redcoat, you know. <laughs> and um, we had our own version of Ted Bovis, Big Joe. Right. Fantastic singing voice, comic time, time was absolutely fantastic. Always a guaranteed favourite. So mm-hmm. when people saw what was going on, on the TV, but they, they didn't, um, they tried to sort of relate that because we were sort of in the latter stages of that era, yeah. you know. And I mean, we were given instructions not to say hi to hi to people <laughs> at, the start of, at the start of one of the seasons. You know, at this, it was 1983, we were told, on no account do you mention hi to hi. Right. And of course, the one thing about redcoats, they're not one for sticking to the rules, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I must admit, um, I did get that flavour um, throughout the book, you know, that, um, shall we say, the rules would be bent oh, yes. to a certain point. Um, and I think it comes across quite clearly in the book that even though they were bending the rules, the redcoats pretty much knew how far they could push you know, before it would be, as it says in the book, they would be sent up the hill. Oh, yeah. I mean, when the thing with the hill, you get sent up the hill, that was the ultimate deterrent because your purpose there was to make people's holiday special. Um, and for, and you always be there, never turn up late, and you make sure they have the best possible time. If you didn't deliver that, then you are definitely up the hill. But what you find is when you went to the different camps, their sort of uh, restrictions there's some, they were a bit more formal the further south you went. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, the air, we used to get away with murder, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but like so when you go down to sail at Bognor, mm-hmm. you try and do the same things you did at air down at the Bognor camp. You know, they, would, they would take umbrage with that. <laughs> so let's have a wee chat about Terry. Yes. Um, now, I'm going to stick my neck out here and you can chop my head off if you like. But I'm 100% convinced that that is you. Yeah, <laughs> you guessed. <laughs> you guessed. And, and do you know the reason why I thought that? Um, uh-huh. Mainly because I listened to your radio show on Indie Live Radio. Yeah. Um, and I must say I really, really enjoy it. But Good. I also heard the little bit of the chat he did uh, on the daytime show with Alan Marlene. Yes. Um, and just based on that, and then obviously reading the book, um, within a couple of pages, I thought, you know, that it's perhaps not autobiographical, but it's very clearly based on, you know, probably your early life. Yeah, that's that's how it all started, actually, that first book. You know, and I had worked, with, um, when I got to hook up with all the different Buttons people, there were some of them were writing their biographies. And I yeah. thought, I fancy doing that myself. Um, but then I thought, only people that are interested in uh, reading biographies are people that are famous. I mean, who would want to read this one? Plus, also, as I wrote the first eight chapters, there was a lot of gaps in there. Yeah. Um, because the thing is, if I put down what I thought was what actually happened, I'm going to get contradicted. So I thought, <laughs> well, why don't just be start as, do, a, do a sort of, fix, uh, sort of fictionalized version yeah. of, of 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 what was what was me? Um, and the thing was. There is a what happened to me was my starter for 10. There was a lot of things that happened in that book which was actually accurate. 
Um, I've changed the names, obviously. People were saying I should have put real names in there, but I thought, no chance. It would boost their egos up no end. <laughs> Plus, they would, they, they would claim royalties for a start. Um, Absolutely. But uh, plus, the th plus the thing was I just finished doing the creative writing course at the Open Uni and uh, and the thing was the first thing they always tell you when you're doing uh, writing is write what you know mm. and I thought well that's that's a good way to that's a good place to start because at the time I had started doing likes of websites about buttons and stuff like that and I thought well it seemed a natural progression to, to go yeah. down that road and I thought well 1982 was a big game changer for me Mm -hmm. because I was Mr. Shy, Sweet and Innocent, you know. And um, I, the thing was, when you started as a red coat, you had to be Mr. Personality, Mr. Extrovert. I wasn't that, you know. And, that's, and, and that was the thing I tried to convey in that book, the fact that Terry was this sort of shy, introvert kind of person yeah. who, only, who enjoyed doing certain things. But when it came to the interaction side of things, he was very weak on that. And it was, wasn't until I walked through the gates of air, suddenly it became a culture shock. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, and, and the huge characters that worked there, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I must admit, I, I could relate slightly to the character of Terry. Um, yeah. I wasn't perhaps as shy and retiring as he was um, mm -hmm. because I, I, I performed, um, you know, for many years, um, playing yep. in bands and acting and stuff like that. But off stage, I was a completely different person from you know who I was on stage it was very much a case of going on stage I put on this sort of persona um, yeah and a lot of people who met me outside of being performing um were quite surprised at the difference um between the two and I guess that was probably the same for Terry yeah because I mean it, it's a switch I mean the thing is performing it's a switch because I mean you've seen a lot of hang on a sec get rid of that um <laughs> That's the thing about see all these things that keep cropping up. Um, the, um, when you speak to a lot of performers, you know they go on stage is because they've got to just flick a switch, and the thing is, the moment they come off that stage, they're basically sort of going back to being Mister Joe Normal. Mm. Very rarely do you see the same person on a stage as mm. what you do when you get away with it. I mean, that, that was said to me. You know, when you listen, if, if I do any performing and they see me in real life, they say, "You can't. You're not the same person." You know. <laughs> And that, and that happens to a lot. I mean, a lot of big performers would say that. Yeah. And I think, I might be wrong here, but was it difficult to be like that almost 24-7? Um, oh, yeah. You would have grown into it, obviously, over the course of the season and the, the years that you worked as a red coat. But initially, how much more difficult was it for you specifically or Terry specifically? It, the, the big the big issue was it was the first big adventure on your on the on your own, mm -hmm. and the thing was in the book we talk about Terry's first he, he suddenly thought he was going to go to air in May and he then decides he finds out he's going to go to Wales yeah and that and and the thing was that was a big thing for me when it happened mm -hmm. to me because you got to meet the people you were working with and you got you and you were getting used to the idea of working with people around you in mm -hmm. terms of the campers or potential campers. And the thing was, that was a tough couple of weeks for me mm -hmm. because um, I, I didn't know which way to turn. And the thing was, is um, these guys, a lot of these guys knew each other already. Yeah. And so they were, they, it was, I was almost getting taken under, under these people's wings, as it were. Mm -hmm. And there were such brilliant characters. And they were eventually, you start to feel more relaxed and you learned from people like that. And it, yeah. was, it, it was difficult. 
And the thing was, whilst I was still Mr. Shy, the thing was, the first week of the season, I actually was put in front of the Stuart Ballroom audience, three and a half thousand people operating it up being a DJ. And, and the thing was, at the time, I hadn't operated a disco unit in my life. <laughs> and, and, and see the thing in the book when we're talking about how we got, how we, how we ended up on that. Yeah. That's true. That yeah. actually happens. <laughs> I mean, I must admit, it, it's one of the things that kind of steered me away from going down that route that you went down was that I honestly couldn't have been in that persona so often. Yeah, you know, I mean, later on in my career, I worked on cruise ships, but mm. I was always a guest artist. I yeah. was never, you know, cruise staff because I couldn't go about with a smile on my face twenty four seven. And if I wanted to hide for the passengers, then I could do so. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and the thing, the thing is, when you're doing that for seventeen weeks, see, once the season finishes, see, trying to stop doing that, that's that's a difficult bit. You know, because yeah. you could be you could be walking along the streets of Glasgow, smiling at people, and they say, "Who are you smiling at?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that is and that is so true. But the, but the thing is, when when I was going when in that first season, I was learning, you know, on the job because, as I said, I was being surrounded by people that had done this all this stuff before. Yeah, it was bringing out the character side of me because I I got the job not because of my personality because I didn't have one. I got it because I could dance. Yeah, and the thing was because I was working alongside them, I then got to um, come out of my shell, get involved in the competitions because the stuff we used to get up to in the competitions, you know, we basically went crazy, you know. <laughs> and, and eventually, by the, as we got halfway through the season, I was just, I was just as daft as the rest of them. <laughs> and we got, I mean, we, we, we did get up to some real, real, real corkers, you know. Yeah, but then of course that. I suppose in many ways that's bound to happen, you know, yeah. um, regardless of what sort of work it is that you're doing, you know, the, the people that you work with do have a tendency to rub off you, rub off on you, and you kind of fall into the, the way of doing stuff. I, I learned so much in that first year. Um, the likes of um, when we're talking about somebody like a guy like Jerry Griffin, Jerry the Tramp, um, most charismatic compare I've ever come across. And he knew how to handle an audience. And the thing was, when we're, uh, when you're working alongside other people, really, really talented people. Mm. Um, and I mean, I had this idea. I, I wanted to get more stage experience. And then when I watched, and the first thing that they taught me was how to connect with people, yeah. because that that was the most important thing. And uh, obviously, and obviously, I've got to give credit to my boss as well, mm. because uh, he was on on my case from day one. And it was, and he actually told me, I. Um, was he kept on going on my case because I never stood up for myself, right. and it, and at the end of the season I was giving it back just as much as him. <laughs> <laughs> but then that again that shows the growth, you know, yeah. uh, of someone who's if you like shy and retiring and going into this kind of uh, experience and developing, you know, and and it's a short time, isn't it? Really, seventeen weeks. I mean, it's it is a, com- a it's, lot. It, it, no, it is a coming of age type of thing mm-hmm. um, because that's the whole so I'd say that's the best way to describe the, that first book it's a coming of age story and the mm-hmm. thing was as we as we were grow, gradually going into the season I mean July we had about four or five weeks before the start of the actual peak season right and um, and that's when the, the big crowds were coming in like five and a half thousand stuff like that by then I was used to it 
Yeah. You know, and and of course you were dealing with the, the you know people that are coming in each week or people that some people stayed there for about three weeks, maybe even longer. You know, and um, you you knew how to um, interact with people. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, as I said at the start, one of the biggest helps for me during my those first weeks was the local chaplain, George Sherry. He was he used to um, he used to say things to me like, um, "It takes so many hundreds of muscles to frown, uh, so many so many thousands of muscles to frown, and just a few few hundred to smile." Yeah. So get your so get your face arrest. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you uh, actually, and you, you did kind of cover it there about people staying, you know, sort of longer than like a week or whatever. Um, yeah. Because obviously, if you go to a lot of the, the sort of we'll call them caravan parks now, as opposed to holiday yeah. parks in that sense, um, you do find there are people who own, you know, their own static van, and they go there pretty much for an entire summer. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, what would have been the kind of maximum stay back then? Would it have been like a week or two weeks? Sometimes it was longer. Sometimes it was longer. I've I've got memories of people staying for about four weeks, right. uh, maybe more. And it it was the same program every week. You know, they weren't changing the programs every week. Uh-huh. They just stayed there because they enjoyed it so much. Um, because the best way to describe buttons back then it was escapism. Yeah. You know, because because you went in there, it was based all colour, it was just end-to-end fun, you know, morning to night. And mm-hmm. when you're in there, you forgot what was going on out in the real world, you know. Mm-hmm. And and there's people that just went there and they just stayed there for weeks. And yeah. that was that was not unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I must admit, I, as a family, we never ever holidayed anywhere like Buttons. Um, but I do remember going on day trips, you know, yeah. like school and that kind of thing. And... Even though you were, well, when he said day trip, it wasn't really a full day in that respect. But I just always remember it being completely frenetic from the point of view of somebody visiting. You yeah. know, you wanted to get in everything that you could in that period of time. So I can imagine that it would have been magnified many times for the Redcoats. Well, when when, we, when you're talking about day visitors, one of the major places you used to go, they, they would always go to, would be the amusement park. Yeah. And the thing was, they'd only recently introduced that as a new duty for the Redcoats. Um, we were, if you mention amusement park to the reg, to a, an ex-Redcoat, they would cringe. Because, <laughs> because likes of, when you were there, you had to, um, my duty at the time was operating the, the, the kiddies rides, the ladybird rides, mm-hmm. just pushing the button, start and finish and all that kind of stuff and see if it rained. If it rained, you, the, you, had, you had to go on the rides with the kids. And that, and that included things like the waltzers and all yeah. this kind of stuff, the big umbrellas. And now I didn't have it, what you call a very strong stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and and the thing was, it was one of those things, it was almost like serving your apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, but the thing was, during the course of a day, when we were talking about day visitors, that's always the place they went to because that place was always heaving during yeah. during the course of the day. Um, and it, it, was frene- it was frenetic. Um, yeah. But set, but certainly the likes of uh, that. I think that was really where it made its main money, to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. the people always used to. It was a great place to go to for the day. Yeah, yeah, and they say. I, I mean, I do have quite vivid memories of going to to Butlins at Air, you know, as a youngster with school and various different sort of groups and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I, I probably at the time I was thinking to myself, this would be great to be here. 
you know, mm. all summer long, this would be a great place to be. Probably yeah. wouldn't have been, you know, but <laughs> when you're when you're a youngster, you know, that's just how you kind of think, isn't it? Well, the thing the thing was is when you went there, um, you didn't go there for the money. Yeah, and because our wage there was thirty-eight pounds a week. And uh, we were working 90 hour shifts. And the thing was we had we were we were having so much fun. Plus the fact is we were helping to make people's holiday specials. That's why when you speak to a red coat now, 30 odd years on, it's it holds special memories for them. It meant so much to them being a red coat because it was such a a, a major thing in their lives because it was life changing. And in the book, being a red coat was life changing for Terry. And it's the same way be, being a red coat became life changing for me. Yeah, and I think as well, it, it was a great springboard, wasn't it, for for a lot of well known sort of comics and singers and that, you know, oh, yeah. went on, you know, from there. W- was there anybody in particular that you worked with uh, during your time at Air? You don't have to name names if you don't want to, but <laughs> went on to, you know, a, a, a kind of much better career within show business. Well, in terms of, I've, when I was in my first season, um, one of the guys on the resident review um, company was a guy called Dougie Small. Mm-hmm. Dougie Small ended up winning New Faces. All right. Yeah. Oh, uh, new f- I remember that name now that you mention it. He, he always used to dress up as Superman. That's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember him. Yeah. Also, we also um, they, they, we worked with. I've worked with like some Mary Gordon. Uh, I've been in the same account when Mary Gordon Price was a member of that resident review. Right. Um, Charlie Drake's son was a compere there one year. Uh-huh. And um, when it comes to the actual redcoats themselves, I would say the most famous one I can think of is one a very well-known Scottish DJ by the name of Gary Marshall. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm- Gary Marshall, king of the junior disco. That was him. <laughs> um, I, I, I would say that was the I mean, the likes of... Um, when you did this, when you did, when the, there was a lot of very talented performers when I was there, mm. but I think I, I, not, they don't. None of them actually sort of made it to sort of the big the big leagues. But yeah. the thing was, I, there were so many really talented people during that mm. time. You know, mm. I mean, some guy. There was one guy who was the best. He was a brilliant character actor, putting in performances and all that. And he mm. finished up working at an airport. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's it's. No, it's no, it was never sort of big, the big names. I mean, I did get to chance to what were the names I mentioned, um, you know, through the, the reviews and the cabaret and all that. But I think when you become a red coat, I mean, nowadays it's all about discovering people. Yeah. You know, when, when back then the whole point of being a red coat was to just try and make people's holiday special, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but now it's a case of, you know, does my hair look all right? Or I, I mean, audition. <laughs> yeah. you, you go, you have a red coat audition for goodness sake. Yeah. It's not the. I mean, I, I got the job. One of the things that helped me got, get the job was I told them I had radio experience, mm-hmm. right? And this is how I got the thing at the, the you know, getting in front of the, the Stuart Ballroom on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. I told the boss that I had radio experience, hospital radio experience, and he said, great, we'll make use of that. But what I didn't tell him was that my experience was hospital radio Paisley reading out the horse racing results on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and next thing you know, crazy. and the thing is, the, the, sort of, the phrase was, you said you could do it when you wrote in, yeah. And that's a co- that's a common phrase that's used, <laughs> and and that's and a lot of red coats go in because of say one thing, and eventually they develop into other things. I mean, you look at somebody like Charlie Drake. Charlie Drake was the the jujitsu instructor, right? You know, and he eventually become a you know the, the stand up comic legend that he was. 
you know, so a lot of people go in for what one reason and they and they learn as they go along. Mm-hmm. And very often, when you're talking about launching pads, we're all being surrounded by all that setup, the professionalism that gives them that gives them the confidence and the belief in themselves to sort of move forward. Because I think if I hadn't been working at Butlins, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah, and because of the the whole Butlins experience. Um, I know at the end of the the first book there you talk about you know going you know maybe going back for the next season you know yeah and obviously you do go back you know um, based on what's happened but when you started out did you ever even for a minute consider that a you would last full seventeen weeks and b you might possibly return for another it- go at it. Well, at the time, I just thought it was, I just went into it as a dream job, a job that I never thought I would get in the first place. Because I, at the time, as far as I was to believe, there was a, a big waiting list of people wanting to get in there. And the thing was, during the first six weeks, you were under the threat of the sack or being sent up the hill mm-hmm. if you didn't deliver. And there were times when I did struggle. I didn't think I was going to last the 17 weeks, but there was no way I could walk away because there's no way I could explain to my parents why they're packing the job, you know. <laughs> and at the end of it, when it came to the final season, you know, when it came to the final week, everything was falling into place. Yeah. And, the, and and when we did, we, we, we did the weekly au revoir, I got introduced onto, the, onto the, the ballroom floor by the manager. And because he'd given me such a hard time during the season, he gave me the best references I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I want to do it. I want to do this again. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, it was not until the end of the season, because you had this uh, lingering doubt in the back of your mind because you didn't know what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, end of the season, you think, oh, I want more of this. And I know yeah. there was an average time scale for a lot of red coats for three years. I thought, well, if the opportunity arises, I fancy doing that again. And when, I, well, for me, I think that sometimes it's better to get that uh, nod of appreciation from your peers yeah. you know, rather than, you know, like the people who see you only for a short period of time but enjoy, you know, whatever it is you're doing and they enthuse about, yeah. you know, what, you know, how great you are and stuff like that. Because the people, for me, the people that are important really are the people that you work with. And in that situation, the management team, who obviously will have a great deal of experience themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think the the management team deserve definitely deserve a lot of credit because I mean, yes, while I was working alongside big characters, they could see I was employed for a specific reason was getting up to people up to dance, yeah. and so the thing is, they were doing everything they could to possibly encourage me, and if I did something wrong, they were the first one to first ones to jump on me from a great height, and mm-hmm. because I, because I was not used to this kind of setup, I did struggle yeah. to begin with, um, and eventually. I mean, I think also what certainly helped was when I ended up meeting my good lady there. Mm. That certainly helped because yeah. because that would never have happened in Greenock because mm. um, she was living in Edinburgh at the time. Yeah. And the thing was, is it, that would never have happened if I hadn't gone to Butlins. And so yeah. when that happened, my whole persona changed even more. So the thing is, I had all these things coming in different directions and suddenly... I felt I'd made a transition from being the sort of the shy, shy schoolboy mm. to the, sort of the young adult, you know, and yeah. it was by, by the end of the 17 weeks. And it's the same thing with, with the Terry character is um, he was looking for direction 
And the thing was, at the end of it, he sort of he found the, the person he wanted to be and the people the, the, the person he wanted to be with because way back then I kind of I, I had a better idea of what I was doing what I wanted to do mm-hmm. you know and um, the fact that um, my good lady was with me that made a big big difference yeah and was it difficult to transition back into if you like civil life you oh know, yeah after your 17 weeks <laughs> oh yeah I mean we did touch on that briefly when um See, we used to do things um, at the camp like smiling and saying hello to passers-by, mm-hmm. passers-by people who don't even know by name. Sometimes we'd be walking past, maybe try to pinch some some people's chips, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I, and it took a good few weeks for that to rub off mm-hmm. because you'd been used to doing it because they were very strict. This was something you had to do yeah. as a red coat when you were up from eight in the morning till one o'clock the following morning. You had to be immaculately dressed and you had to smile. Yeah. And you had to say hello to people. I mean, there were examples of you'd have the, the entertainment manager be standing at the window of the Stuart Ballroom where you'd look down on the main road of the camp. Mm. They would see a red coat walking along the road towards the Stuart Ballroom and he would watch to see if they'd actually said hello. Yeah. If they didn't say hello, he would tell them to go back down the stairs, go back to the end of the camp and do it again. <laughs> and and this, is how, this is how important because... See, if uh, you didn't say a lot of camper, very often a record could get in trouble for that. Yeah. And it was ingrained in your mind. And so things, when it became habit forming, mm-hmm. it was difficult the moment you saw, the moment the red jacket came off, you know, I described that as a bit of a Clark Kent moment, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're then saying, yeah, I've got to get back to some kind of normality. And it's a huge, huge buzz. And it's a yeah. difficult thing to replace it with. And I think, a lot, I think that's why a lot of people moved on to the performance side. You know, whether it's either doing stand-up or doing um, singing or whatever, or even likes the radio, you were yeah. looking for something to replace that, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, to a certain extent, that's where, that's where radio came in, yeah. you know. And I ended up doing 10 years of stand-up as well. Right. So what sort of the – how how did you come to be doing the stand-up? Um, it was through Butlins. It was because right. of Butlins. Um, 1983 season. Um, I saw how a lot of people were trying to develop characters, mm-hmm. right? We we had the guy, Big Joe, Big Joe Byrne, an absolute legend. He was about 20 stone and he used to walk about dressed as a schoolboy and um, <laughs> selling badges. And the thing was, a lot of people were adopting some kind of characters. And the mm-hmm. thing was, in the 1983, uh, 1981-2 season, I was a uh, Butlin's answer to John Travolta because of my dancing. Mm. And I thought, I want to try and do, I want to try and create my own kind of character. Mm. And so um, I went into this, for some reason, I don't know why, I walked into this shop and I saw these pair of plastic ears. And the things at the time, everybody was doing Prince Charles. Right. And I thought, sounds like a good idea. So I get a pair of plastic ears and I walk about the camp pretending I'm Prince Charles. And next thing you know, people are actually laughing and enjoying it. Mm. And while I was doing it, Unknown to me at the time, Chris Drake, Charlie Drake's son, who's the, who was the compere at the time, he saw what I was doing. And he and then once we finished, we had a break before the next detail. He just says, do you fancy trying an act like that? And I said, well, I've never done it before. I said, well, I'll help you. And so he wrote about half a dozen gags. And he, he's teaching me stagecraft, walking on and waiting for laughs and all about timing and all that. And um, I walked on and I'm doing an act as Prince Charles. And, and I found myself, hang on, I'm getting laughs. Yeah. You know, and it's a, it was a, it was a thousand, 800 people in the theatre 
you know, I mean, I, it was the, to quote Mr. Billy Connolly, it was the best lags I've ever known, you know. Yeah. Um, um, and, spe- and, and I'm spend, I spent about 40 minutes and, and the gentleman's excuse me before I went on because I was so worried. And when I, when I did it and I got the response I got, I thought, well, let's see if we can try and push this a little bit further. Mm. And so eventually the impressions became less and I then started telling more and more gags. And eventually the gags became the main thing. Yeah. Then, the, then the following year, I, I was asked if I fancied doing a spot in one of the bars, uh, in the Conti bar. So I ended up doing a half hour spot in the, the, the Continental bar. And, but the thing is, I was always wanting to get in the Red Coat show doing stand-up. And eventually what happened was at the end of the final season, that's what, exactly what I did. And, um, and it was after that finished, I thought, well, let's try and see if we can do that in the outside world. And so I ended up doing talent shows and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, um, and we were doing some, you know, the talent shows around like, so the East, East Coast area and stuff like that. And um, it kind of evolved from there. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, th- that period um, in the 1980s, obviously was a very difficult time um, yeah. because of, you know, Margaret Thatcher and her policies and shutting down lots of industry and what have you. Yeah. So I imagine that it would have made it even more difficult for you when you'd done your 17 weeks and you go back into Surrey Street to even consider, you know, an inverted commas, a normal job. It was it was difficult, but I think, see, when after the 84 season, see, I got engaged in 1983. Mm. I knew it, was, it wasn't going to last. Yeah. And so the thing is, when we came to the 84 season, we knew that was going to be our last season. And so we had to, we, we then realised we had to get some kind of work after that. And um, I, I got a job in Edinburgh, uh, Wendy got a job in health, Edinburgh as well in the health club and it was while I was there I was kind of saying well I don't want to sort of say right that was the three years at Butlins that's it thank you very much yeah. I thought well I learned so much there why don't I try and do some, try and put that to good use somehow even if it becomes a hobby mm-hmm. and uh, eventually what happened was was um, I mean I had did I, I did the talent shows around the Edinburgh area Dalkeith and all this kind of places and um, now and again I got the occasional bookings and uh, next thing I know, I'm doing stand-up on a regular basis. And um, it was great. I mean, I think there was, a, there was a couple of times when I wished the ground had swallowed me up. But, um, but that, that's part of the course, you know. Yeah. And, um, but that was for 10 years. And I think the moment Margaret Thatcher left office, I think that's when my comedy career stopped. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. So I wanted, I wanted to talk a wee bit about the, the dancing Yes. As well. Because um, obviously um, you had done very well with that, um, you know, being in a, a national dance team and all that kind of stuff. Would you ever, did you ever think that that would have been a path that you would have continued to go along? Or did there just come a point where you thought, no, I'm not doing it anymore? It was an actual progression thing with the dancing. I mean, when I first started dancing when I was eight, eight years old, me and my brother went to the local dance, dance school. And uh, we were doing our exams and competitions and all that. And the thing was, when my brother turned 16, he he got to the age where he was invited to join the Scotland Formation team. Mm. It was run by David and Irene Wood. Um, and he was invited to join that. And um, and so that became his regular regular thing. And so I saw him on the TV do it. And he went to Belgium and Blackpool and all this kind of stuff. And at the time, though, I'd packed, I'd packed in the dancing when I was 12. Um, 
I didn't see myself going back. But the thing was, when I saw what he was doing, um, I could see he was doing really well. And um, when I turned 16, um, they were a desperate need for guys to the lineup. And yeah. so they did. So, so, this, so my brother said to me, he says, you know, fancy having a go at it. And I thought, well, why not? And so I ended up, I, get, I, I joined the team and I was dancing in places like the Albert Hall. And mm-hmm. I mean, my first ever, my, my debut was in the Winter Gardens at Blackpool. You know, a packed Winter Gardens at Blackpool. Yeah. Um, and that was such a huge thrill, um, especially the fact that just before we came on, one of my dance heroes, Bill Irvin, came up to speak to us. Mm-hmm. Um, the 13 times undefeated world champion came up wishing us good luck. And that was such a thrill. And the thing was, I was quite, I'd have been quite happy staying in that line. That line. Yeah. But the problem was we were running drastically short of guys. One of them basically became, discovered religion. So right. training on a Sunday was out. And so it was something we eventually stopped. It, it had to stop because we just didn't have enough guys to do it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the following year, it was the following year I got, I got the job at Butlins. And it was because of what happened there, mm-hmm. uh, because of my experience, I got the job at Butlins. And the thing was, I became known as the dancer, you know, and um, I had, the boss was having me doing disco dancing demonstrations and uh, he was trying to get me into the Cayley yeah. team as well. Thank God I was ill that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the thing was, I, became, I got the reputation as somebody who did the party dances and I was always yeah. the person to get the people up for the quick waltzes and quick steps and stuff like that. And I, I got to the point where I loved it, you know, um, Anytime there was any dance routines going on, I was always the first one there. Um, I could have become a dance teacher, mm-hmm. but it's a big commitment to do things like that. I mean, I think it was more the performing element I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my, my wife keeps saying to me, she wants me to teach her to dance. And I, I've told her I'll do it one of these days, you know. But, um, that, that was years ago and she's still waiting. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, the likes of... Um, the dancing was gave me so many brilliant experiences, and it was because of that I got the job at Butlins. Mm-hmm. And so, it's almost like you know your sort of life's journey goes in stages, you yeah. know. Um, and I think this is basically where we're looking at in terms of the book. You know, the first the first book is basically a coming of age. Mm-hmm. You meet somebody, and you think, right, where's this going? And this is basically, you know, is he going to come back? Is he going? To, you know, what does he want out of this job? If he's going to come back? Is he going to try and do something else? And um, what's he, you know, if he's got some kind of direction, you know, yeah. is it an angle or is there something he still wants to do? Because mm-hmm. Butlins was such a, is such a professional setup. You know, you're going to get, if you say, I want to do X, Y, and Z, there's a good chance you're going to get a chance. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people did get the chance to do stuff that they've never done before. Yeah, yeah. And that is probably the, the best thing about doing that, you know, going down that kind of route of being like a red coat or a blue coat or whatever the case may be. Um, It gives you a very good opportunity to try various things. Um, Whether you think you've got a knack for it or not, somebody might see in you, you know, oh, that guy could be a comedian or that person could be this or that or the next thing, and they give you the opportunity. And I think they also give you the confidence to, to go for it. Because, you know, you might not consider yourself to be, you know, someone who would be able to do X. No, that, that, see, that's the, that's the key word there, confidence. Confidence. Mm-hmm. And there's also belief. Because when I went there, as I said, I did, I was, I was ne- one thing I was never was Mr. Personality. I was somebody that could dance. And the mm-hmm. thing was, 
when I was being around all the various people, I started to believe in myself a bit more. And I, I wasn't, I, I, was, I'm, I was one of those kind of guys, well, at the end of the 17 weeks, I thought, I'm going to have a go at this. And even if I fall flat in my face, at least I know I've tried. Yeah. You know, and and the likes, and certainly that's the kind of belief, the confidence. That's to me, that's your launch pad because even though a lot of red coats are associated with being in show business, mm. a lot of red coats got their belief and their confidence to do so many different things, not yeah. necessarily in the entertainment world. You know, when we talk about things like marketing, um, mm. if you're talking about things like, you know, from a sales point of view, they might not have had the confidence to be being, being amongst the people. Yeah. They, working at Butlins gave you that, you know, mm. and um, but certainly the, certainly when it comes to the opportunity, I mean, likes of Charlie Drake was jujitsu, but the end of the time he was being a, he was being, um, you know, the, the, you know, the comedian. Yeah. I started off as a dancer. Halfway during the, I ended up, I'm becoming a DJ and a compare. I mm. compared the disco competition. And the thing was for the so-called shy boy, suddenly yeah. find yourself doing that. You know, it's such a huge step up and the rewards you were getting was absolutely amazing. You know, mm. I, mean, yeah, I mean, the money was rotten, but who cares? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, I think, you know, a lot of people probably wouldn't have realised, you know, at the time, just sort of how poorly, you know, the Redcoats were paid and probably how much time they actually spent doing their job. Yeah, I mean, we started off, you start, you had to be up for um, eight o'clock in the morning for breakfast. Night, smartly dressed with a, with a smile, all that jazz. You worked until up to about half 12, one o'clock, until and that, but then everything had shut down. If you were involved in the red coat show, that you would be working, you would be rehearsing until three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And you still had to be up for eight o'clock. If you were involved in the midnight cabaret, then that would take you to about three o'clock as well. So you mm -hmm. still had to, you still, you still had to be up in time. And it was a regular thing, you know, um, but. Very often the adrenaline would kick in, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and the one thing you were told was never be late for anything. And, and it was, everybody was so focused, you know, there was a team about 30 or 35 of us or something like that. And every single one of them brought something to the table. They were absolutely brilliant. I mean, I know look, we were just part of a, of, of a big picture, you yeah. know, the Red Coats did one thing, but the thing is all the other people at Buttons played their part as well, you know, the different mm -hmm. departments, you know, we were, we were just we were just a, just one element of, of the of the, the final product, but certainly from the the red coat point of view, it's it was it was a game changer, and that's yeah. to a certain extent what the a life you know life changes, and that's that's really what, really what that first book's about. It's it's a culture shock. Mm. It changes a young man's life in terms of belief in himself and being around somewhere totally different, and it ends up during the course of it his life changes on a personal level because he meets someone. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, and that's because to be honest, when I wrote this first book, I never for one second expected it to be labeled under the romantic element. <laughs> you know, that, that was, that was never my intention. It just yeah. I kind of fell into the, fell into that category, you know? Mm. Um, but certainly with the likes of when people read the book, they're going to see historical accuracy of what it was like working there what it was like to go on holiday there. Yes, there's a lot of fictional stuff in there. It's like a fictionalized version of what happened to me. Yeah. You know, th that's the best way to describe it. Um, so, but, but certainly, but certainly it's, this, it's the start of a journey. I mean, that's basically what part one is. It's a journey. Mm. Um, and likes of that title, I couldn't call it anything else, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I must admit, when, 
when I started to read the book, um, I love reading, you know, and I read lots of different types of books. Um, yeah. And I started to read it, and probably a couple of pages into it, mm-hmm. and that was the point where it was like, I can't put this down. Oh, that's good to you hear. Know, I'm so glad. I'm so I'm so glad this program's recorded. <laughs> <laughs> and every you know every time I picked it up to read, um, mm. if I was going to have to go and do something, I was like, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to put it down. I want to know what's going to happen next. You know. I mean, I think I, th- I think I think one of the key elements of the, the book is it's bringing back a lot of memories for folk. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people when they talk about the competitions like the Noble Knees or the, the you know the cheerful, charming, and chubby. You know, people can sort of look at it and say, I remember when it was competitions. Yeah. You know, I remember being stood up in a chair in a dining room in front of a thousand people. They're all singing happy birthday to me. You know, yeah. it, you know, there's, it, there's a lot of elements about the old style built ones that people look, still look back with fondness today, even yeah. though time, times do change. Yeah. But, uh, but there's a lot of people that still love reminiscing about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I, I, I performed in a Cayley band and we used to travel around, um, the holiday parks all over Scotland, eh? Granny Sealand came up in Embo, Nairn, you know, all these kind of places. And I used to do a family show bit before the actual Cayley band part. Yeah. And I always remember one of the, the, the bass player in the band, the, the other guys were in one of the bars having a drink and I was doing my stuff. And for whatever reason, somebody from the staff, had gone through and said, you've got to come through and see this. And I used to do this competition where it was predominantly, it was the kids that were taking part. And on the disco decks, we had uh, some sound effects machines and every sound effect, there was an action to it. Yeah. Um, and this particular day, don't know why, but I just thought, do you know what? I stopped it and I went, right, kids, I want you to go and get your dad or your granddad or your uncle, whichever male is here with you. Um, on holiday to come up on the floor with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they all run off, and I was like, this one wee lad is sort of still standing there. And I'm like, go, go on, you know, go and get. And he's like, but I don't have anybody like that. I went, mm. do you know what? See that man over there? Go and ask him. He won't say no. Yeah. So the wee boy trips across and saying to the guy, and you, I could see this guy, he was like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, but of course he gets up, you know, because you start getting the audience to G him up. So yeah, get them all up. And one of the actions was you played this particular sound and they'd lie on the floor and wave their arms and legs in the air and scream at the top of their voice. And this was the bit where they went and then got the other guys for the band to come through because they couldn't believe that I had these uh, adults doing this childish thing, you know? And somebody said to me afterwards, you know, how did you know that would work? And I said, well, I didn't know it would work. I says, but the point is... They're there on holiday. They're there to have a good time. It doesn't matter if they make a fool of themselves. That's the key. That's the key thing. That's the key what? thing. Because I mean, we we the, on my first season, um, one th- example of the Noblenese competition. Um, me and this guy were because back then you were volunteered. If a red coat clock Jay, you were volunteered to take part in this competition <laughs> for the exact same reasons you're talking about. Um, we were trying to get people up for the Noblenese competition. And there was, um, they were, they were a bit reluctant to say the least. And so we clocked this guy sitting in a chair at, at, at one end of the ballroom, and saying, "Right, come on, noble knees competition, come on, join in." He says, "I'm not getting up from this seat." So what we did was we picked up the seat, him still sitting on it, 
we carried him in, still sitting on his seat. We rolled up his, we actually rolled up his trouser legs, <laughs> you know. And um, that was the kind of mentality we had. I mean, you look at some of the old photographs of the buttons, even even the other camps. You've got yeah. examples of the campers being carried in with their legs and their arms and all this uh, kind of stuff. Yeah. And and when you're doing things like it's an knockout, it was always the red coats who tried to persuade people to get involved, and for the reasons that you talked about. You know, yeah. you're there on holiday. You don't want to just sit in there and look like an old surplus. You know, absolutely. And the thing is, when you're being marked, as soon as the audience see this guy's got, the audience will play their part trying to get you to come up, and you can't say no because you're not just talking about the fighting either a kid or maybe the red coach. You're talking about the yeah. thousands of people that are watching your absolutely. every move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do remember as a, a, a boy, probably about, I don't know, maybe eight seven something like that i can't remember where it was we were on holiday but we were on holiday and we were at this show thing and it was kind of like that you know they were trying to get people up to take part in this competition and i got dragged up and it was a who was the best tarzan call oh yeah that was the competition you know and i won it you know <laughs> and i think i think that was probably the first time i'd ever won anything in my life no, you know no. and I'm like, i went about as if i was 10 foot tall yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we had, we had some, there were some brilliant competitions. I mean, um, the cheerful, charming, chubby one was always a guaranteed crowd pleaser. You know, the, it was absolutely mobbed. And the, and the women turned up and they really threw themselves into it, you know. And it was, and you, I do highlight that element of the of this competition in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the incident in question is exactly what, what actually happened to me. Um, um, and certainly things that, you know, Later on in one of the other series, I, I touched on the Nobonese and yeah, and and the thing was at that point, people you were expected people were expected to participate. Doesn't matter if you didn't want to do it or not. You know, we'll we'll, we'll talk you talk you through it yeah. or talk you around it as it were. Mm-hmm. And um, every competition, this is when we're talking about the latter stages of Heidi High, because um, that's what the really the eighty the, the, that time was. Um, people were being persuaded to join and they were volunteered. Yeah. And you, and that's something that was always a thing you expected at Butlins. If you go to Butlins, you go to a competition, there's a good chance you're going to be a volunteer to take part. You know, and that's exactly what happened during that first season. Yeah. No, I, and, you know, I, I can still, even to this day, I can envisage when you're talking there about, you know, carrying somebody in a chair, you know, because yeah. they're a bit reluctant. I mean, I can actually see that in my mind's eye you know and i can hear the audience reaction to that you know i mean it is such a a very visual experience you know even if you've not physically been there and seen it happen if somebody describes it to you and you've seen something similar you're going to pick up on it i mean i mean another example of when when we were being somebody we've been persuaded was the bonnie baby competition um, one of the judges was the vicar's wife, right. and uh, and she said that she'd never t- she don't know didn't know what the baby food tasted like. So <laughs> the red coats, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Um, the red coats then decided to make make a make a portion up. So they got some of the sashes, poured it in, and they started to mix it up. And they and they decided they're going to get our taste. They're going to. Feed, she, I don't want to do it. <laughs> the, so they basically got a napkin, put the napkin round it. And they basically got her to open up her mouth, and they put uh, the, the stuff in her mouth, in her in her in her face, and of course the photographer's own hand to capture yeah. every single moment. You know, <laughs> they always are <laughs> exactly. And um, I mean, that that was that was another example of things that we did. But I mean, there was one time when uh, we had the picture of health competition, mm-hmm. um, and um, some there was a kid was a nine year old kid or something who um, who learned who was learning judo. 
It was a picture of Helder's Landing Judo. And uh, the guy who was compared was the, the kiddie's uncle. And um, and he said, uh, can you do any of those throws and things like that? Oh, yeah, she says. I think Redcoat Frank might be, might, you be, can you do this in Redcoat Frank? So next thing I know, I'm be, I have to get my jacket off. And I'm meant to be pretending I'm being thrown over the shoulder by this nine-year-old. And I, and I hurt my back in the process. And, um, and, the, and the thing is, this was an exa- I mean, this was an example. I mean, it wasn't just a case of red coats volunteering the punters to take part. Yeah, the red coats were being persuaded to get involved as well. Yeah. I mean, there is an element of that in the book when we talk about the, you know, the cheerful, charming, chubby competition, mm-hmm. which kind of sort of broke the te- that helped to bring the Terry character out of his shell, you know. And um, there was a lot of that during the course of that year. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things about those types of holidays. Um, where that even if you were reluctant to get involved with something, you know, as a member of the audience getting dragged on stage or whatever the case might have been, I think I can safely say that the vast majority of them, when they would look back on it, they would laugh about it. Oh, yeah. forget about the fact that they were reticent to begin with. Now, I mean, see, when likes of, if somebody comes away from a Butlins holiday as a Butlins competition winner, Mm. You know, thousands of people at, at the camp, and I'm the one who's number one. Or yeah. look at the certificate I got; it's a it's a badge of honour. You know, even yeah. for the noble, even the Noblenese competition or the or the cheerful champion chubby. You know, mm. a lot of people were quite proud to get that because yeah. it, it was such a big thing. I mean, granted, there was the money competitions as well. You know, um, which was a different kettle of fish because that was the, those were the competitions where we had to behave ourselves. Yeah, you know, uh, you know the the, the holiday princess, the machine, all that. Because that was going to national finals, whereas the thing is with the, with the other competitions I mentioned before, you can basically it's, it's a free for all, yeah, you know. And but certainly, a lot of people went there because of the competitions, you know. They, they enjoyed even watching it, but even just the, the idea of saying, "Right, I'm going to try and win the talent contest this year," yeah. you know. And um, and even if they get it to the actual main main stage, you know, it's it's, it's a proud moment for a lot of them. Mm. Yeah. And for many people, that is probably the only time that they would ever, you know, be involved with anything like that. You know, I beat so so, be, they, they would feel like a celebrity for a week. Yeah. yeah. You know, and um, I mean, the likes of um, when you see, like, I mean, I never did much on, when I was doing the, the stuff with the talent competition, you know, you see people that are coming on there feeling really nervous and, mm-hmm. and they come off to a sort of huge round of applause and all that. You know, and the big smile on their faces, it meant, it meant a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, yep. But I just want to briefly go back to, to the book. Um, the, the, there was a point in the book when you're going away um, to Wales. Yeah. You know, and you talk about, you know, your mum and dad coming up on the train with you up to Central Station and all that kind of stuff. And I must admit, it struck a chord. Um, with me, um, I remember the first time I ever went away anywhere without, you know, being with my family. Yeah, um, it wasn't to go to Wales to, to no. in relation to a job or anything like that. It was actually going away with the, the, the scouts, all um, right, to, to a summer camp. But I remember my mum and dad, you know, coming with me, and you know, the first that my mum would make about, you know, have you got this packed? Have you got that packed? <laughs> you know, have you got clean this? Have you got clean that? You know, and when I was reading that, you know, I must admit. I had a wee bit of a tear in mind, mm-hmm. you know, because it just brought back a, a great memory, you know, of my own mum, who sadly is no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but it it was a sad moment, 
But at the same time, it was a great moment, um, obviously for yourself and for Terry, because it was the start of that adventure. That was it, an, an, an adventure. That was it, it's an adventure. I, I mean, the likes of, I had, I mean, I had gone down to Wales before um, with my brother um, when we were both doing the dance team. So the thing is, it was a case of, I was, I, I was, I wasn't sort of shouldering all the responsibility on yeah. my own. Um, but the thing was, when I'd, be, I'd left school, and this was the first time I was really doing something big, you know, and the th- as you said, it's an adventure. I was going to a part of, of the country I've never been to before in my life. I, don't, I didn't know where I was going. All yeah. I knew was I had a ticket to get me to a particular station. Then after that, I just didn't know what was going to happen next. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and that was the thing. Try to find your way. And that's why the, the, the thing at the, the Kids Weeks was so good because yeah. it, was, it was a good breaking in period mm-hmm. for me. And, um, and and that really set me up nicely for the start of the season. And the thing was, there were so many, so many big things in that first year. You know, it kind of sort of, 82 was a transformation, you know. And the thing is, once you get past 82, it's a case of saying, right, where do we go from here? Because so much happened in that first year. Yeah, you know, and and, and it, it was a coming of age, but it also was it was life changing in all directions. And I think you speak to a lot of ex redcoats; they probably say the same thing. It was life changing, yeah. you know, for the for whole multitude of different reasons. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you very much for taking the time out to chat with me. It's um, a pleasure. Um, off once we finish this and I get this all edited and all the rest of it, I'm going to make a start on book two. Yep. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. sandwiched in between reading book one, um, what time does the Midnight Cabaret start? Um, and the second book, I've actually read another book for another author who I'm going to be chatting to as well. <laughs> so yeah. it's busy, busy, busy. But uh, like yourself, thank you very much. I really, really appreciated it. And uh, I'm looking forward to chatting to you once I've read the second one. No, it's going to be an absolute pleasure again, sir. (laughs) Nice to meet you at last. (laughs) You too, yeah. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. And you, bye.